one of the directors of the Joseph Company, and uh, this seminar is The Prophetic Purpose of Business, and I've also invited uh, Bob Hartley, uh, who is going to do a little tag team. Um, uh, Bob Hartley is uh, the owner of Hartley's Executive Cleaning, and um, so he is he's going to come and share a little bit about uh, the prophetic purpose of business as well. So we'll do a little tag team, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. Um, so I'm going to talk about the uh, the prophetic purpose of business, and especially as it relates to Israel. Um, my background is business. I uh, I was a um, uh, I ran a large technology company here in Kansas City for years. I was I was uh, I started as an engineer um, 20 years ago. Started a large technology company that uh, ended up having a little a little revival that happened in the business. And um, um, through the years, we had probably um, 30 people get saved. We had lots of people uh, just you know come alive in God and. Um, uh, out of this revelation, uh, I, I got a, I got a, uh, a download from heaven on the, per, the prophetic purpose of business. What is the purpose? And I'll back up for just for just a minute. I I uh, got radically saved in college, and uh, I'm a, I'm a senior in UC Berkeley, in the top in my class in computer science. And I decided that God didn't know, want to do have anything to do with business. God didn't care about computers, is uh, what I said. And I, so I, I told my pastor, I'm going to quit school. I had one quarter left to go before I'd graduate. I was going to be a senior pastor because, in my understanding, that was the only way I could fulfill the, the passion of God, right? If, the, if you're going to really serve God, you have to be in full-time ministry. That was uh, so I believed. Um, uh, ended up getting my dream, became a senior pastor at age 24, um, which was uh, kind of a disaster. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's many 24-year-olds who are qualified to be a senior pastor. Um, ended up getting fired and, uh, 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 ended up getting a job going, but without a vision for, for, for the business and the, and, you know, any spiritual vision whatsoever for business. So, um, uh, but at one point I, uh, I, uh, I started this business here in Kansas City about, uh, eight years ago or something like that. And, uh, at, I really had no vision for it. I had no spiritual vision for it. Now, in the, from a business perspective, I knew it was going to be, it could be a good thing and, and grow. But spiritually, I was just bored. I was just, I just, you know, didn't have any uh, sense that, uh, you know, there's no opportunity for me is what was happening in, in ministry. And um, so I thought, well, I'll do this business. Why not? Ended up starting the business. But as it started to grow and be blessed, I got more and more pained in my heart. Because I realized I'm now, you know, 35 years old, I, I realized that this was my lot in life. I was going to be a businessman. And uh, my dreams of ministry were dead, were dying. I was relegated to insignificance, uh, if you will. And uh, so I started to be very pained about this. Meanwhile, the Lord began to speak in my, in my heart. And, uh, and, uh, and I, you know, I kind of had a sense that there was some purpose here. So I started praying. I said, Lord, show me that this is significant to you. And if you'll show me it's significant to you, I'll do it with my whole heart. Well, what happened, as I said, is we started having a little revival in this business, actually in the, in the, in the business. And this was not, you know, overly dramatic. It was not, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 1.5. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, like Finney, people rolling around on the floor or whatever, uh, out of conviction. But it was real. It was legitimate. 
And it was just a normal dorky business like like any business you would be a part of. You know, we made lots of mistakes and did a lot of things wrong and uh, a lot of people, things didn't work. It was just a normal everyday business. But the activity of, the God, of God started happening. So I got this download from business and the prophetic purpose of business. Um, now I'm going to back up a little bit a little bit further as well here. Um, my wife and I were in Los Angeles before we moved to Kansas City and before I'd started this business and um, uh, uh, moved to Kansas City on a prophetic word out of Psalm 107. We were praying, we're desperate, we're in a, this, you know, you ever have been in a place where grace lifts? You know, you're doing something and all of a sudden it's just like grace is gone for whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden it gets real hard. Well, that's where it was. We're in Los Angeles. So we started um, uh, just praying, God, God, help us. And at one point, um, I don't want to go into the long version of the story, but the, uh, the you know our, our, our cassette player had Psalms playing, and Psalm 107 came on, playing back the exact thing we had just prayed, almost word for word what we had just prayed. Psalm 107, and it was, it was this. It said, I will lead you by a straight path to a city of habitation. Within 45 days from that time, we were in Kansas City. Our entire family was moved. I had a job. The job was paying my same salary. Uh, we had, had bought a house. The house was closed, and all of our stuff was in our house. That's a straight path to, to, a, to a city of habitation. So we were alerted to this thing called a city of habitation. What is that? A um, few years later, 1997, we, we read the Blueprint Prophecy. How many of you have listened to the Encountering Jesus tape series about the Blueprint Prophecy? Well, then you understand. I mean, a very miraculous prophetic word that had, you know, had three confirmations um, to it. Well, I, I got a hold of this Blueprint Prophecy, and it talked about God creating cities of habitation. Now, I'm totally alerted. I'm going, oh, my gosh, what are cities of habitation? Because I felt like we were to be a part of building cities of habitation. Cities of habitation, um, and God was speaking to me about this business, would be a type of a city of habitation. So we're alerted to to this whole thing um, uh, when uh, the Lord speaks to me about the Joseph Company here um, uh, a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago. um, Well, really, actually a year and a half now. We started the Joseph Company uh, really to empower uh, the kingdom of God um, to invade the marketplace, and and the marketplace to invade the kingdom of God, for these for these kind of things to happen. And 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 uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you just a little bit of overview of the Joseph Company, uh, the purpose and vision of the Joseph Company, real quick, and then we'll talk. I'm going to talk about cities of habitation and what they are, because I believe it has reference to Israel. The first thing I want to say is that. Um, God is going to send unprecedented judgments on planet Earth. Um, this is, you know, you read the scriptures, it's simply, uh, it's simply there. Um, unprecedented judgments are going to be released. Is that so that he can hurt people? Is that his aim? No. You see, God's, God will send judgments because he is going to remove everything that hinders love for the Son of God. He is going to shake everything that can be shaken in order to remove everything that hinders love. His goal in judging is not to destroy. His goal is to simply remove what hinders love. He's a jealous God, and he is going to do that. But in that judgment, he is going to remember mercy. He cannot do otherwise because he is a merciful God. 
So God is going to raise up unprecedented Josephs to meet unprecedented judgments. Do you follow me? In the days of the Near East, when Joseph uh, uh, was in Egypt, there was a judgment that happened called a famine. But God didn't make it so that people just starved to death. Okay, he, he sent forth a Joseph who, would, who built a city called Goshen, became a city of habitation. All the judgments in Egypt were happening some 350 years later in, uh, with Moses. All the judgments happening in Egypt, not in Goshen. In Joseph's day, everybody's starving. There's no food. Everybody's selling everything they had, but not in Goshen. It became a city of habitation, a city of refuge, if, if you will. So God is serious about raising up Joseph because he's serious about bringing bringing mercy in the judgments. Um, number two, that in judgment, God is going to make his bride the epicenter of supply and sanctuary. As judgment happens, the church is going to be the epicenter of supply and sanctuary. Um, Isaiah 60, 1 through 11, I'm not going to read it, but, but it, it says this, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And that's the scripture that talks about the glorious bride emerging. In that same scripture, it's easy to miss, there are seven references to wealth. See, what's going to happen is as the mature bride is released, uh, it comes forth in planet earth, unprecedented wealth is also going to be released to the body of Christ. They coincide as the bride is revealed. So the scripture proclaims great darkness in the earth, the emergence of the mature bride of Christ, and the wealth of the nations coming to the church. God's strategy is to bring wealth to the church. What happens, imagine, you know, the entire world is lawless and starving, and there's this thing called the church that, is, that, has, law, that has order and peace and, and abundance. What's going to happen if that's the case? Well, all the nations are going to come to us. And that's God's plan. That's God's plan. Um, so God is, God's strategy is to raise up these Josephs who will be carriers of, of this truth and this message. I'm going to read to you out of Bob Jones Shepherd's Rod about the Josephs ministries. He said, uh, this is in 2002, he said, Facilitating the revelation of the kingdom throughout the earth, along with the historic things that are about to take place worldwide, will require vast sums of resources... Part of the promise for this day is the emerging Joseph ministries that will provide a great source of plenty in time of famine. The anointed leadership with the calling and commission of the Joseph ministries will be spiritual, the spiritual and natural antidote for the plans of the enemy. These specially prepared and equipped ministries will sow into the church divine counsel and power to overcome the strategies of the enemy and establish the kingdom by the word and the spirit. Um, Joseph Company, fivefold vision. Uh, just real quickly... Number one is to release the sons of Issachar, First uh, Chronicles 12.32. I call them the strategic prophets, the strategic prophets, if you will. Uh, they understand the times and know what Israel should do. It speaks of tr- strategic understanding of the purposes of God. You know, I think we have a lot of prophetic going around, but not a lot of strategic prophetic. Not a lot where we, we actually are hearing what is God's plans and strategies for the planet. I do think we're hearing it here at the conference. Um, but I believe we need to be more strategic about, about uh, working with, uh, you know, alongside of what God is doing and understanding it, what he's doing. Number two is mercy deeds to the nations, mercy deeds to the nations. In Joseph's famine, perhaps millions were saved from starvation. And God is going to release Joseph's who do unprecedented mercy deeds to the nations. 
Number three is impacting world leaders. Um, Joseph said, uh, God has made me a father to Pharaoh. God has made me a father to Pharaoh. Um, as God raises us up in places of influence and wealth and power, we are going to uh, uh, impact world leaders. Number four, redeeming the marketplace. Today, the marketplace is a place that is all but abdicated by the church, as a place where, this, where the Lord cannot inhabit. We really have no faith for it. Uh, it's it's a, kind of a black hole of faith, many people believe. You know, If you go into that thing called the marketplace, you're going to lose your passion, you're going to lose your fire. And, uh, and in fact, it's, it's not true. The marketplace is going to be a great harvest field for us and a place of the presence. And this is, this is part of my experience, what I experienced in my business, um, is that it was, it was a oasis. It was a spiritual oasis. Um, and I believe God is going to raise up those who will redeem the marketplace and build, uh, 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 take the presence of God, establish the presence of God in the marketplace. And uh, when I say marketplace, I mean arenas of education, arenas of, arenas of government, arenas of business, arenas of the home, um, really just anything outside of the church specifically. Um, interestingly, um, Joseph was a forerunner. He was the first one to, into Egypt, and he took, the, he took the people of God into Egypt, which is a type of the world. He took the people of God into Egypt. So the Josephs are be those who take the, the people of God, the church, into the world systems to invade the world systems. And finally, building cities of habitation. God is going to raise up. Cities of refuge or cities of habitations, they're preserved cities, preserved by God as places of sanctuary, healing, worship, self-government, culture, education, and industry thriving in dark times. Goshen was just such a city. Goshen was just such a, such a city. Um, what we do in the Joseph Company is we do conferences and summits, basically uh, sounding the trumpet, proclaiming the times, releasing the prophetic, etc. We do a business school. We actually train, train up people in business. You know, for people who are passionate um, for Jesus, there's lots of on-ramps into full-time ministry, aren't there? How many are there into the marketplace? How many people have you heard, you know, say, I'm so passionate for Jesus, I have to go into the marketplace? And uh, there's just no models of passion in the marketplace. So we're, we're established the school to build these models of passion, demonstrate um, that a marketplace calling and passion for Jesus are not mutually exclusive, and equipping people to actually go do this and start businesses. Third thing is the Goshen Incubator, where we actually help people start businesses and, and, find, uh, and, and buy businesses and operate businesses, that kind of thing, um, and a few other things. All right, so cities of habitation. Um, um, I, I believe that today where we're at in, in the body of Christ is very similar to what was going on um, in the days of Nehemiah when Nehemiah uh, was, w- rebuilt the walls. Um, it's interesting. I did, I've done a whole bunch of, uh, of, of research on this. And um, in Nehemiah's day, the temple had been, had been built. True worship had been restored. So, so they had the temple had been built some 70 years earlier. Everybody should be happy, right? True, true worship is restored. Um, but Nehemiah, I'm going to read to you out of Nehemiah 1. It says, Now it happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. He says he's in exile. He's not in Israel. He's in Susa, a foreign capital where they had been exiled now. 
Um, and uh, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. These people who had come back, they had built the temple. Now they had come back to Susa and were, were, were hanging out. And, and he asked them, um, uh, some men from Judah, and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The remnant there are in great distress and reproach. And the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When I read this, I could, I could weep over the church today. I could weep this, this scripture over the church it is, it is, we are the scorn of the earth, the, the, the church today. We're, we're, we're viewed as irrelevant, we're viewed as backwards, we're viewed as, you know, we're, we're impoverished in many ways. We don't have the resources to do great and mighty works. You know, we really have become uh, a, a byword and, 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 and derision. We really are in great distress and reproach. And the walls are torn out. Now we have true worship. You see, the temple has been restored, meaning true worship has been restored. But really, we're, we're, we're barren. We're barren, aren't we? You know, I look at the remnant in Israel. And I look at these precious men of God and women of God who have come over from the land, uh, who are believing Jews, who are the remnant. And I look at them, and you know, they've told me stories, and I've, I've sat with them over the last year, and uh, oh, it breaks my heart. You know, these people, they're, they almost, you know, they, they, they can barely get a building. They can barely hold down a job. Uh, you know, they're, they're continually persecuted, they're disrespected. I mean, these people, you know, there's only a few thousand of them in the entire nation, believing Jews. Uh, it's incredibly hard over there, incredibly difficult, under great, if, if, if it weren't, if, if, you know, the Palestinians and the uprisings, and that weren't enough, the Jews themselves persecute them. Here they are. I mean, it is, they are in great distress and reproach. And I don't know how much of that you're picking up, but it's a fact. It's a fact. They're in great distress and reproach. So what's God's answer to this? Interestingly enough, history reveals to us that at the time of Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem was almost completely abandoned. The people who had come back, some 50,000 Jews who went back to build the temple and, and emigrate back to the land of Israel, were mostly in the outlying areas around side the city. The city, the walls were completely torn down. The temple was restored, a very modest version of it. I, I don't think we would have been impressed. Um, and they, they scratched out a meager living out at, in the outskirts of the city, subjected to the, to the cruelty of the local warlords and the whims of you know, whatever anybody wanted to do to them. They had no government, no self-determination. They had worship. They scratched out a meager living in, in dire poverty. Dire poverty. They would go up to the temple um, to, uh, to, to worship, but were very separated from one another. They were scattered. See, and without the city, you've got the temple, that's good. But without the city, there's no strength of community. There's no corporate will. There's no resources. There's no ability to build something permanent and sustainable, is there? There's no walls of protection from the enemy. So Nehemiah, people think Nehemiah built, rebuilt the temple. He did not rebuild the temple. He built the walls. He's a hero for what? Building the walls. 
But without walls, you don't have a city. As soon as they built the walls, Nehemiah also repopulated the city. People began to come into the city. They began to, to establish industry and trade. They began to, to establish government and education and, and medicine and all these things that, that comprise a city. You follow me? I, I believe that today, these are, this, is, this is the place we are in, in the body of Christ, that the, the purpose... Uh, purposes of God are going to be established um, uh, through the city of God. And that God is raising up primarily businesses and business leaders to, to begin the process. I, the, the Joseph Company is, a, is primarily marketplace business oriented. And it becomes the economic fabric of the cities of habitation. You follow me? As we, as we network together, imagine in this city, 250 businesses who are, who are building these anointed businesses that are establishing the presence of God in the marketplace. They're hiring people from churches. They're, they're exchanging employees. They're, they're trading among one another becomes a safety net, an economic safety net, and an economic fabric for what God's going to do. Add to that, add to this economics, you know, church and ministry, add to it education, add, add to it medicine uh, and, and hospitals, add to it military, and you have, you have a city of habitation. So I believe God is, 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 is raising up beginning in the very, very early, early beginning stages of raising up what I call cities of habitation. I was talking with some of these, um, uh, you know, Jewish brethren, the remnant there, and they're, they're saying, you know, tell them about the Joseph Company, and they said, you know, can you, uh, you know, can you come over <laughs> to Israel and help us, you know, build this? You know, we have... You know, you know, we're a lot of Russians. We have, you know, we've kind of lost the entrepreneurial edge here, you know, and, uh, um, you know, the taxes are high. There's, there's just the opportunities or nobody knows how to capitalize on, on them. We're just, he's basically saying we're just, we're just, we're barren. We're barren and, 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 uh, you know, um, and, and I, I believe, see, business is a place not just where economics happen, but where the kingdom actually happens. One of, the, one of the things I teach, I have a message entitled uh, 10, things, 10 Kingdom Things Business Can Do. Um, it's about discipling. You know, you actually disciple people in life skills and, and, and in the Lord. You, you, can, uh, you can evangelize freely. I had, I had one gentleman write me uh, who is a, a CEO of a, of a food processing company. He was invited by the Chinese government to come build a food processing business in China to hire 6,000 displaced workers. I thought, wow. Now, see, in China, here's what's going on. I mean, they're a close country. If you preach the gospel, you get kicked out. The other thing about China is that the, the rural, the revival that you hear about is mostly taking place in the rural areas. The cities are, by and large, not changed. So you bring the marketplace, you bring businesses in there, you get 6,000 people working for me, I guarantee you they'd start getting saved. You know, if, and, and can they kick me out? Not really, you know. Um, it'd be hard, really, really hard for them to do that. Um, so long as I just don't do anything too overt and too offensive to them, you know, they're going to put up with me. See, business is a way to carry the gospel across closed nations. I believe it's also a way, imagine here, you know, let's take Israel. Here's this poor remnant over in Israel to begin to hire, you know, believers, um, the remnant over there to begin to, to create wealth and produce revenues for these people. Also begin to hire, you know, some of these, so these, these Russians and begin to train them in just entrepreneurial skills and, and just life skills. 
Um, and you know, it's you know, it's easier easier said than done. Nothing that I'm saying is is easy. You know, and doing a business is never easy. Um, but I believe that we, we that we we can we can create something significant that becomes cities of habitation. Ultimately, imagine you've got one. Imagine you have a hundred over there, a hundred businesses that have the ability to hire on demand, that have the ability to to take people and pr- and produce for them income and and give them uh, you know uh, discipleship opportunities, etc. So um, this is one of God's strategies. What is what are cities of habitation? And I'm not going to go into all this. Um, a whole bunch of stuff. I want to make sure we have time for Bob here. Um, sure. Um, she's asking what are some other some of the other purposes of business um, um, and uh, so I'm going to list them some of the purposes of business are developing life skills developing life skills and I'll define life skills as uh, things people need to be successful in life whether you're in ministry or work or family or whatever life skills include people skills work ethic Problem-solving, diligence, perseverance, follow-through, conflict resolution, communication skills, people management skills, project management, confidence, teachableness, motivating, recruiting, planning, decision-making, good judgment. Those are life skills. Well, they're developed in business. They're developed in the marketplace. Leadership development. Leadership development. Leaders are developed and, and um, uh, created in the marketplace. Um, true leaders. Management. Managers. Managers. You know, nothing, nothing is, all the resources in the world will not be sustained without management. Management takes activity and creates productivity. It takes chaos and creates order. And without, without management, you basically can build nothing lasting. Well, the best companies are management factories, great at producing and creating management skill. And everyone, you have to have management skill in order to be effective. Mentoring and discipleship, being able to basically take people to the next level of where they're to be in character and skills and discipling and mentoring. Um, Every man, every day ministry, number five, which is uh, basically, you know, uh, you know, as I look over the church models today, I look and I think, how many people are being effectively launched in ministry? And I remember looking out over a congregation at one point and seeing very powerful people. You know, the whole, the whole, you know, pews are full of thousands of people that many I knew who are extremely anointed. And I see them sitting there and I thought, how much spiritual potential is being, being fulfilled right now? And I thought, maybe being generous 1%. And, um, you know, I believe that, that, the, that the, the New Testament church was framed, you know, by apostolic power, but it was really built by just normal, everyday, goofy people just living for the Lord where they were at. In the marketplace. And uh, so it's just what I call every man, everyday ministry. It's not flashy. It's not, it's not, it's not cool. It's just every single person just, just being at their best for the Lord. And market, the marketplace is a place where every, every man, everyday ministry happens. Evangelism, I mentioned. 
spiritual oasis, a spiritual oasis. We saw this where the presence of God was manifest and where just the life of God spontaneously was springing up. Um, Number eight, friendship and community, friendship and community. You know, uh, it's very difficult today to build community. Um, you know, our neighborhoods are not what they used to be as far as, you know, a lot of times you don't even know your neighbors that well. Church, you only see people a few times a week maybe. And you can actually build community at work because you're in the foxhole together, you're in teams together, you're working together. Um, nine is benevolence. Benevolence. I was just talking with some brothers. I think this is this is so neat. Um, uh, he said, you know, I, I take some of my basic jobs I reserve for those who who need who basically need something. It's the old concept of gleaning. You know, in gleaning, the uh, the business owners were told, don't pick all the green. Leave a little bit left over so that someone who is desperate can come do some work and take care of themselves. It's not charity. They can come and work for themselves and help themselves. So he actually takes some of his most rudimentary work and just kind of leaves it open for anyone who has need, that they can come and do a little bit of this work and, in essence, glean. And, uh, and isn't that a cool idea? And, and just benevolence, just creating benevolence uh, through the marketplace. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I remember a guy coming to me in my business and, and just a guy who's just down on his luck. I mean, we've all been there at one time or another where you know, nothing's working, your life, you know, just fall out from under you. And this guy had five kids, you know, and lost his job and had not been able to find anything. And he made mistakes, but we all make mistakes. And he said to me, he said, you know, um, you know, if you can pay me $10 an hour, I'll do anything, including scrubbing toilets. And I hired him, you know, and the guy ended up moving on and making, you know, uh, almost six figures a year later. He was able to get back in his feet, you know, and that's benevolence. So kingdom benevolence. And then uh, tenth is... You know, what we usually think about is uh, wealth creation, you know. So, um, all right. Ooh, moving on, I'm going to just about done here, Bobby. So why don't you come on up? Um, what exactly is a city of habitation? Well, a city of habitation is God's divine strategy for end time, for, for mercy in dark times. God's divine strategy for mercy in dark times. There are two cities of habitation in Scripture that I can find. One is Goshen that Joseph built. Two is the city of Jerusalem that Nehemiah built. Both brought mercy in very hard times and in dark times. It's, uh, it's God's divine strategy to bring mercy. He is as serious about raising up cities of habitation and raising up Joseph's and Nehemiah's who will build them as he is serious about bringing mercy in dark times. What exactly is a city of habitation? It's, um, it's a place where, uh, imagine evil reigning lawlessness on the increase. Um, in the city you have an oasis, which is a place of life, refreshment, restoration, joy, prosperity, community. You have order and authority, uh, anointed patriarchal, matriarchal government with proper boundaries and respect. And here's lawlessness outside, inside you have order and anointed government, anointed government. Elders at the gates, blending all arenas of life, civil, uh, judicial, business, medicine, educational, church, government, all arenas of life, being elders at the gates, ruling, ruling the city. Safety, you have watchmen in the walls, guards at the gates, repairers in the breaches, breaking the back of the enemy who dares trespass. Um, so it's a, it's a place of safety, protected. Um, brotherhood, taking care of where we stand for one another, meaning that it's not okay if your brother falls. 
You know, we stand up for one another. We don't just let our, let our, uh, let our brethren go. Um, we have unity with diversity, which means we don't have to all look alike and smell alike and talk alike, you know, but we respect one another. And, uh, uh, and then it's really, it's a place where there's a prayer room in the middle. And all this whole thing is built on prayer. His house will be called a house of prayer. When it's all done, the primary identity that the church of God will have by people who are objectively looking from the outside at it, they will call it a house of prayer. And these cities are houses of prayer. All right. Um, any, any questions? Real quick before we... Uh, so where are those cities now? They don't exist. Um, uh, I, I think the... Uh, you know, and I'm not sure it'll ever be a physical place. It might, it might be. You know, I certainly is a network of hearts and a network of people who have the same goals. What I'm talking about, I had a little type in a shadow of a city of habitation in my in my business. I think it was a one percent, you know, of what a city of habitation will be. So it existed there, one percent worth of it. Um, I I think you know Bob Jones prophesied there will be 48 cities of habitation in the United States. Uh, places of refuge, if you if you will. So, I don't think they exist. I I think they're years in the making. Um, you know, really, I think we're casting the vision for it and casting a vision for the marketplace people to be engaged in in a in a prophetic purpose and not just you know hanging their head down. Yes, ma'am. All Malango, Guatemala. There's huge revival that's happened there. It really, it really could be a city of refuge. You know, if they add a governmental element, which it has to, has to be there, um, then, I, then I would, I would agree with you. And if, if they have anointed government, because that's really what it has to happen. And if they add prayer rooms and all those other things, so a lot of these revivals break out, and you get the beginnings or a shadow of a city of habitation, then it fades away because there's no forms and no government to hold it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah. Yes, Count Zindendorf was amazing. He talked about a forerunner, um, and I wish I had more data on what he actually did. But uh, stunning, stunning stuff. Excellent point. All right, let's welcome Bob Hartley. Bogatov. See, I can speak. Does anybody know what that means? I lived in Israel for a while. I just made that word up. No, it means hello, if I said it close to right. I believe there is a city of habitation in Ashkelon, in Israel. I believe there's the makings of it. I I believe that there's going to be cities of habitation that come forth in Israel. And I believe we're to learn how to build in the United States, be city builders, Nehemiahs, build up the walls. You know, Bob makes a great point, I don't know if he did today, that uh, the temple's been built in the United States, but in the church, a place of worship. But uh, we don't have the walls. We don't have that place where the protection of God is, the provision of God is. So I just came back from Portland, Oregon. I'm up there with churches, and they have a place of worship. 
But the whole church is overrun. People lose their jobs, sick. Children don't like parents. And I say, where are the patriarchs? The matriarchs stand up and say, enough to stand on the wall and have wise ways to build life skills and build generations. And so I experienced it in Ashkelon, some in Israel. I lived in Zimbabwe. And I left with my wife. We were pastors with Mike Bickle uh, for nine years. And I said, I am meeting one expression of God, and I love it, in the midst of our church, but it's very myopic, very small, very narrow. I'm learning about the God of church and the God of the prayer room, and I need to learn about the God of life. And I said, so I want to travel to places where they're building community, building cities that have the wisdom ways of God in the way that they live out their lives together. Because I believe in the American church, we've raised a group of Mephibosheths. And those are those that were David's, <coughs> Jonathan's son, that they sat at the king's table. They were intimate with God, but they had no faith legs. They couldn't walk. They couldn't stand. And you look at our youth and our young adults, and there's more wanderers in the land per capita than anywhere on the planet almost. And it makes me sad. And I say, where is the wisdom of God to build to build futures, to build destinies, to create health and welfare and prosperous communities. So I believe that there has been uh, a threefold grace of God that we need. And there's the character of God, which I, I believe the church it was like a sleeping giant in the Middle Ages. And I might have heard this from somebody else, but I believe it. But the church was like a sleeping giant in the times of the you know, indulgences with the Catholic Church, and then you got Martin Luther that comes along and says, no, character is important, faith is important, and you have an awakening of character in the church. Righteousness, integrity is important. So you get Finney, you get the revivals of conviction. So the character, that grace of God, I believe, started awakening the giant, which is the church. So you got a sleeping giant, one leg wakes up. And then, after a while, you had the gifts or the power, the second part of the threefold grace of God, the power of God. So you got Azusa Street, and you got the healing revivals, and you start to give the power in the body starts to wake up. And so you got this giant that now is stumbling along. But the threefold, thirdfold grace of God, which we need uh, majorly, is the wisdom of God, the brain of the giant. To wake up, the wisdom to build, the wisdom to build, and to build futures, generations, destinies, the ways of God in the midst of our lives. So we left, my wife and I, and this is 1989, I believe, we leave and we go to Zimbabwe because we heard that there was a community of people living out the wisdom ways of God. And it was profound. And they had a community and they... Uh, walked out the ways of God as much as they could discern it and the way they spoke, the way they paced their lives and what they ate and the way they treated the earth. It was, and I could go on. Well, we were able to stay in Zimbabwe, but it got very dangerous. And so they called us in, my wife and I, and they said, you got to leave. And I said, our journey isn't over to my wife. I said, I think we're to go to Israel. So I had read a lot about kibbutzes and moshavs, and I had not had a lot of experience uh, with the reality of Israel and, you know, read about it. And so we go there, 
And we show up, and now we had contacts back here in Kansas City. There were great contacts. Could have gotten us in with the Christian community. Could have got us into places of, you know, that were more uh, the regular path when you go to Israel. But I said, I think we're to go, uh, you know, there and not know anybody and not, you know, count on any lead and just go to a kibbutz and be a volunteer. So kibbutz. Uh, the kibbutzes started in Israel, and you know during the Nazi times, where a lot of people fled. Some of you know better than me, but I read the history in depth. A lot of people fled from uh, Europe, and they came down in their boats, and they settled in Israel. And the particular kibbutz we got sent to was a kibbutz called Ashkelon. It was in Ashkelon, and it was about eight miles in. Uh, from the ocean, from the shore, and it was uh, on the southern part of Israel, on the southern part of Israel. So we go there and we start to volunteer on this kibbutz. Kibbutz is a community. This one had about 450 people on it, and they uh, shared everything. They called it perfect democracy, but it was really communism, and it was an interesting idea. In theory, so the leaders led from underneath, and I'd love to go into the history and how they did it. But I went there to discover community with my wife, to discover the ways of the Lord. This was not necessarily a very spiritual kibbutz, although I found spiritual Jews. I found some that were the three-day Jews that celebrate three holy days. But I uh, started to go on a uh, journey with the different people that we met there. And I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit because it has to do with the city of habitation, has to do with, uh, I think, the most important reality about the Israel mandate, which is about the discovery of God. It's finding out what our true worship is, rightly defining our worship. And I believe that there was major discoveries for my wife and I in this place on the kibbutz. So I'll tag that experience, share that with you. I went to uh, the kibbutz with my wife looking for a fuller expression of Christianity. A greater view of who God is. Not as this God of the church, but the God of life. Not looking for a Greek way of thought towards God, which we have in the Western world, which compartmentalizes all of our life. So he's not the God of life, he's the God of church or he's the God of sacraments. And I wanted to go on a kibbutz and meet some spiritual Jews that really saw him as the God of life. They had an integrated perspective where everything's under God, it's Hebrew perspective. So we go there looking for that and also looking for uh, wisdom ways of God to walk out life and walk out community together. And to look what a city habitation, to look for the ingredients of a city of habitation, what it could look like. Because I'll just give you a little bit more history of the particular kibbutz we were on. They fled during uh, the Nazi times. They fled on a boat. They were not allowed to enter into Israel. They had to sneak down the coast and come up into the desert and just walk eight miles in and settle. So you got 450 people, they take what they got on their backs, they walk in, and it's hot. It's 110 degrees when they got there, and when we were there, it was that as well. And so they plant down their roots and their stakes, and they start to turn this desert into a garden that bloomed. 
Unbelievable. And so they have half an egg every day and half a piece of toast. And, and they talked about everything from the beginnings to where they're at now to my wife and I. But is the, the industry in the Chronicles where it talks about First uh, Chronicles 12.32, the sons and daughters of Issachar are able to discern the times and the seasons, the ability to build. And if you look at the different tribes in Israel, just the wisdom and the stewardship from different tribes and their ability to make something out of nothing. So they had settled in there, and now they had almost $3 billion of industry coming out of this kibbutz. They flew flowers out every day. They had a factory for sprinkler systems that went all over the world. They had an amazing watermelon patch. Uh, they had amazing uh, different tools of income that came out of this kibbutz. And it was a real place of protection. There was a real place of community life. Now, there were some things that needed to grow because they weren't seeking God, a lot of them, but they were just walking out his ways. So that's kind of where I get to come into the picture a little bit. Because when we got on the kibbutz, we were volunteers. And volunteers are the low of the low on the kibbutz. You just come and you volunteer. You're trying to learn the culture. And they give you, you know, a shack that's way away from the kibbutz and living. You know, it's up over the hill. You're still on the kibbutz. But the people that we were with that were volunteers were worldwide hobos. They weren't just, you know, the there's the hobos that are inland that hop trains. These guys hop planes, and they're just looking for a place they can party. And so the volunteers are not respected a whole lot, but the government still kept this program in place. And so we get relegated to some real menial tasks, which is okay. We work hard, but we weren't going to learn much about the culture of the kibbutz. So I like to play chess, and I'm playing the other volunteers' chess uh, because they had a big open room where they'd eat. And so one of the guys comes up to me and challenges me, and I win. So that night, he invites me into a group, and there are eight people there, and he has me playing the different ones in chess. And I get beat by somebody, and I win as well. But I come to realize these are the eight leaders of the kibbutz. And they're underground, they're unseen. But the woman that led it was unbelievable, just in her wisdom and stature and understanding. And so I get to be with them about every night, eat cookies and play chess, and discuss who Jesus is and who he isn't in some of their minds. And so that's where uh, it was a, uh, just, we got to discover some of what I believe is new ways of worship, because we get to talk about it. With them, so I'm going to talk to you about the discovery of God, related to Israel, related to the kibbutz, related to the city habitation, because I think this is, uh, excuse me, what the whole Israel mandate starts and ends with, and also when we look at the Joseph Company, it's really about discovering God in the marketplace. So. <clears throat> I get a job when I'm on the kibbutz, and the first job that I get is doing the sprinkler systems, and I'm just turning a ball. You do anything they ask you to do, and do it for eight hours a day. And I, I'm turning it uh, and putting the bolts on, happy to do it, would like to be doing something that I felt was more productive, but 
there's a man next to me, and his name's Hetty. And he's uh, turning bolts as well. And we got into incredible discussions. And I'm listening to him, and I'm thinking, turning bolts, this man, he could be, uh, he could run a corporation in, in the United States. He could be a mid-manager for a large corpor- corporation. He had the skill mix. He had the intelligence. So I start to talk to him more about his role on the kibbutz. And I come to find out that he was the leader of the kibbutz. For, they get voted on and off. So he wasn't at that uh, particular time. But he had been for eight years. And when I asked other people about him, they just said he's brilliant. We were on to re-up him continually. But I asked him some questions. You know, I said, I got a Christian perspective of life. And I want to get a fuller understanding of who God is. And I said, our, our paradigms, I believe, are limited, that we've limited the expressions of who God is and reality of who God is. And I said, I think we've limited the reality of worship. What's the distinctives of worship? And so I said, what do you think? And he happened to be a spiritual Jew and, and, and sought, you know, God. So he said, I believe worship is whatever you do to encounter him. And that was the first distinctive. And I would like you to note that. First distinctive of worship is whatever you do to encounter him. He said it's more than a song and it's more than a prayer. But it's whatever you do to encounter him. And then he took me out of that place of the uh, factory and he took me over to where the milk cows were. And there were young people that were caring for these milk cows. And he said, these milk cows used to give 22 liters of milk a day. He said, now they're getting around 60. Unbelievable. And he said, because they designed a grain called a, a seed, a grass, called Israeli sorghum. And he said, that has fed the cows. And he said, that has caused them to produce Three times as much as what they were producing. And he said, what you'll see in their faces, in their lives, and as they work, is the God of industry. This is a forgotten face of God. Like in America, the forgotten face of God who loves to work. I'm around so many young people that are scared to death of work. And I say, yum, yum, eat it up. You're missing a face of God. Work is t- eternal and forever and is a gift. So I said, he said, this is where they encounter God as they raise these cattle. They took me over to where they were setting up for a wedding. And, they, and I ended up leading the youth. They had a number of youth. They had a couple of hundred because they ship, ship them in for the, from the city. And I ended up leading them and leading them uh, in their setup of celebrations. And they know how to celebrate. And he said this wedding, and he described it to me. And I'd never been around a Jewish wedding. And, and then he talked about some of the other celebrations. They had like the feast on the kibbutz. And he said, watch them. And they were just celebrating as they're doing their work. And he said, you'll encounter the face of God in the God, the God who is the celebrator, the God of celebration. And so he said, they are encountering God as they do this, whatever you do to encounter God. And then he took me out to the watermelon patch, and I ended up working with the youth, and they picked the watermelons about four in the morning, and they always would 
pleasant attitudes and did it. And he said, they meet the God of creation. I experienced something in Zimbabwe where I'm shoveling sand with a little African that's about 90 pounds. And I have to do it with him for about two weeks every day. And he just beat me. And I'm twice his size. And finally I pick him up. And this is along the lines of this reality of worship, whatever you do to encounter him. I pick this African up because his pile's always bigger than me, and I like to work. I'm shoveling hard, and and uh, he just beat me, beat me solidly every time. So I pick him up. His name is Barnabas II. He's been evangelized by the Catholics. He's named after a pope somewhere, some way. So I pick him up over my head, and I throw him in this pile of sand uh, from the back of this pickup truck. I said, how can you work like that? And after he composed himself, he looked at me and he said, this is my worship. He said, worship isn't preaching or prophesying, as it says in Matthew 7.13. He says, you enter the narrow gate by doing the will of God. And this is the will of God for me. And he said, I encounter, again, they got a service industry. As I do this, I encounter God. He said, you have such a narrow perspective of worship in the United States. Now, he was more gracious in his approach. Then he walked me over a hill, and there's two black-as-night African men, a father and a son, in these green overalls that are luminous. So I just it was just a weird picture. And they're behind an ox, and you walk in Zimbabwe, and there's been drought for years upon years. It's just like dirt, concrete, you know, there's not a blade of grass. I look down over this hill, down in the valley, and there's this two-acre oasis, most beautiful garden I've ever seen in my life. And these guys are singing unto God as they're behind that plow. And uh, Barnabas points at them and said, that's worship. They're encountering God, the God of creation. So I believe in this Israel mandate. The reality is we are to bring the discovery of God and we're to come with the God, discover God in the marketplace. And that's where I found the Jewish people that I met really hungry and thirsty because I caught it. And I'd be with Hetty or I'd be with JL or I'd be with Deborah, different people on the farm, and I would stop her on the kibbutz and I'd say, this is worship. We're encountering God here, and we're encountering the face of God. And I defined some of the forgotten faces of God that I'd see us encountering as we went on along. And it would broaden their definition and their applications to who God possibly was and how we could worship him. So what is worship? Worship is whatever you do to encounter him. And I saw that on the kibbutz. I saw this expanded understanding of who God was. And another aspect of worship, I believe that they showed to me on the kibbutz, was worship was unique for each person. As diverse and cosmopolitan and creative each and every person is, so is worship. Uh, I saw the understanding that Jacob worshiped God by getting a revelation from God about his goats, selective breeding of goats, if you're reading Genesis 29 or 30, that he discovered God and uniquely worshipped him in the raising of his goats. 
You look at Abraham, he was a cattleman. You look at Noah, he nailed. And you just look at Lydia, she was a maker of purple. And I believe those were diverse expressions of worship. And they were worshiping God the way they were designed to worship God. Again, it was more than a, a prayer. And it was more than a song. And I saw on the kibbutz the most unique expressions of love for God. It's anything he has uniquely put in your heart to love him back with. You know, it's a Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your, and the emphasis, your heart, mind, might, and soul. How do you love him best back? The first Peter 4.10, you've all been given a special gift to worship our God with. And I believe he's bored with the worship we give him because it's not unique to who we are. And it really stunned me on the kibbutz with this lady named J.L. who ran the kitchen. There were about 450 people she'd feed. And her worship was a unique expression of her who loved to cook. And it was the way she loved best. I own a cleaning company now. I usually have about 120 people that clean buildings. Now I got 70, 60, 70 people that clean buildings. And I got other things going on. But I got a floor guy. And he does floors. He strips them and whacks them. And I'll walk in and he'll show me his floor. He's got no teeth. He said, I can't prophesy. I can't preach. I can't pray very well. And he said, but this is unto God. This is my art. And I want to see what happened in Pharaoh's day. Where Pharaoh says, you're all going to make bricks the same way. And this is your form of worship. I'm using this as a type. And Moses comes along and says, let the people go. Let them be beautiful in their own way and express their cosmopolitan callings to you. And there are going to be weird callings coming up in the days to come. As weird as you are, as unique as you are, as unique as I am. And how do I worship him best? I clean buildings with C players. Like Bob said, I was the outstanding graduate at my university. I was a, you know, not a big deal, but I was heading to Alexian Brothers. It's a Jesuit medical school. I would have been a lousy doctor flunked out. But I heard the call of God on my life to work with C players, people that had, had tough times that weren't corporate realities. They would never make it in that, in that arena. They just didn't have corporate finesse or grace. And help them become B players. They're not going to become A players. And I love it. This is where I worship him best. I don't love it all the time. I love who I'm doing it for. So how do you love him best? He wants to engage your heart. And I saw on the kibbutz, and I use JL as an example, of one that just this beautiful expression of worship as she ran the corporate kitchen for the others. You know, Bob said something, I think, maybe he did about his son. I've heard him before. But my son... Like Bob's, I believe, is a little boy. And ever since he now he's 11 or 12, he never has liked meetings that much, sitting in church meetings. And that's okay with me. I mean, he's not obnoxious. He'll do it. But ever since he's been a little kid, he's loved to build. And he'd build this blue city with this imaginary friend. He's loved to talk to me about his business. He just loves the idea of running it about my business. He loves the idea of running it. And doing something good for the poor. But he's told that's not spiritual. By every implication and every innuendo. 
And I say, buddy, it's beautiful. It's who you are. I can remember when he was two, figuring out how to put telephone books on top of each other so he could flip on the light. I cried because I just thought, this is how God has wired him. And he's, he's making discoveries, and I want to train up a child in the way he should go. And that I also saw on the kibbutz unbelievably. I saw people allowed to express their uniqueness. And I tell them, this is a lot like Jesus. We'd have discussions that night. I said, we've done it wrong in the Western world. I said, you got the ways of Jesus even more than we do a lot of times. Because we've forced people into roles, five-fold roles, and, you know, and said you're not spiritual if you don't do that. And I said, Jesus was not a cornerstone, not, or not a capstone. He was a cornerstone that released all the rocks to be what they are. Stones are weird, the way they fit, the way they're cut into a wall. So I believe that this worship that we're to help walk into and that they walked into is as unique as the individuals in this room. Your expressions, how do you love him best? But I write poems, and they're not good. But it's what I do. I got about ten expressions of worship that are unique for me, and a lot of them take place in the marketplace and work for me. How I do my business. So I saw on the kibbutz, when we talk about a city of habitation, I feel like one ingredient is the true nurture of the young ones, the mentoring of the young ones. And I just want to give you this picture and example, allowing them to be who they are, training them up in the bent they should go. I'm walking. I got different jobs assigned to me on the kibbutz. And then they find out what you can do best. For me, it was running the swimming pool because I'd been a lifeguard and I'd run pools. So they put me there. So it was an easy job. Uh, but anyhow, so my wife had such a hard job every night she'd be mad at me. But anyhow, I'm walking back from the pool to where we were living. And I walk by where all the children play. It's beautiful open area and these beautiful Israeli children with their, you know, a lot of long block, black locks and curly and just beautiful eyes. And, and I stand behind these three men and I'm just watching the kids. I'm just enamored with their beauty. And I start to listen to these men, and they're talking about a six-year-old boy. And they're talking about this boy's gift mix, his personality traits, his essence, his uniqueness, his maturity, and these different, uh, different attributes that the boy had. And it was stunning, the skill they had, uh, the understanding they had about this young man, the six-year-old. And I was awing, because I've been around, and you have been great personnel placement people in the United States, and people that just had, uh, you know, an art and a cultivated skill. But this was beyond this. They were thinking 40 years in advance for this child. And I couldn't figure out which one was the father. They all had love and ownership for this child. You know, in the Florida prison system, there's 13,000 inmates, and out of all of them, three of them are Jewish. Hardly any Jewish people, because, you know, you hear the, you know, the funny thing, my son, the doctor or lawyer from the Jewish mother. But I think it's way beyond that. I think there's a trained eye 
for how to bring forth a child, how to mentor them, and how to think generationally. And I would sit with these eight leaders, and they'd go through the 450 people on the kibbutz, and their understanding of what made that person tick, and their who they were, who they were going to be. I mean, the spirit of wisdom, seeing where they would go, spirit of understanding where they were at right now compared to where they needed to go, and the spirit of counsel, how to get there. It was astounding. So I would listen to them, and I'd say, you know, you got another discovery of the forgotten faces of God, I call it. And it's God is the patriarch. You know, the nurture and the builder of other people's lives. And I'd say the Son of God was really good at that. He prayed all night for his 12, and they allowed me to speak freely, and then we'd get into an open discussion. So I say, we must find out how to love them best. And I think when we meet a lot of Israeli or Jewish people and we say, now you got to worship a certain way, like our Christianity I found in Israel. And I'm not saying I know everything, but the people I met, it was Christian weirdom. You don't have to agree and disagree with that, but it just it was so narrow and so intense and bringing the church into our common evangelical perspective, and it really didn't bridge a, build a bridge that I believe God had for who they were. We saw, tried to sell them the God of church and our brand versus the God of life. And really, it just, you know, it just was a people going over there to evangelize with their agenda that seemed pretty far from the reality of the historic Jesus. So I, I give you, I can't develop that, but I, I give you that to think about. What are we really bringing them? And I believe the marketplace is going to be a chief place where we meet other Jewish people. My commercial real estate guy, Jeff Berg, Jewish guy. And he buy, we're buying a lot of property together and selling a lot of property and I'll tell him, this is my worship, Jeff. This is how I worship God. And this is what you believe about your Hebrew God. And my Hebrew God, I said, and this is, it's congruent. So worship, last thing I want to say about what they showed me on the kibbutz, is whatever you do to love him back. And so I've said, we want a city of habitation. We want a place, I believe, where we'll end up in Israel, a lot of us, and we want, need to know how to build this and invite our, our brothers in, sisters in, our Jewish brothers and sisters. So what do we need? We need a clear definition of what worship is. And I'm giving you three distinctives. I'm saying worship is whatever you do to encounter him. And I give you the example of Hetty with the God of service and industry. And then worship is unique for each person. It's how God has fashioned their heart so they can be released to worship him in the way that they are designed. And then I said we've limited God's expressions in our Christianity. I'm not saying you guys, but I think it's a question to ask, that we can not super-spiritualize the biblical characters that were really, when you look at them, their worship was out in the marketplace, it was out in creation, it was the political educational arenas. I mean, you look at Abraham, Abraham was not a cattleman, or not a priest, he was a cattleman. You look at Moses, he wasn't in the synagogue, he was a social reformer. He changed society. You look at uh, Joshua, he was a general, like General Eisenhower. David 
was a king that ruled the affairs of men. They sought God seven times a day. It says he praised him in Psalms 119 to get direction. But we've looked at these guys and gals through eyes of the priest, and that's how we've been taught it, and, and they're, they were never that. And they're the people with the greatest impact in Scripture. Now, I'm all for being a, a priest and being a pastor. I have been nine years and had, I was with Mike, and now I've had my own ministry since then. But I think it's both. I think there's a greater expression of who God is. And he's desiring to bring that forth and give us understanding on that. Third, worship is whatever you do to love him back. And that distinctive of worship in the kibbutz, I saw a lot of people doing hard jobs unto God. Unto God. And, you know, I own a cleaning business, and if it's not people's preference, if it's this and that, or it gets hard, then God's called them out of it. And I I just want to submit to you, and I, that's not fair to everybody, obviously. I'm overstating things. But I sit next to Hetty. He's doing these bolts, and I say, gosh, this guy's potential. I mean, he's doing bolts on this little, these sprinkler systems for eight hours a day. And so I asked him, I said, do you like your job? And he said, it's not a question. He said, I don't even think about it as a question. He said, I think about how it serves others. He said, if I do this, it makes a difference for the people on the kibbutz. And he said, I think about my family who I'm feeding. And he said, so I don't care whether I like it or not. I'm motivated out of love. I do it unto God because I love him. And I, uh, you know, I saw something that's in the scripture where Jacob serves Laban for numbers of years, 14 years, to get Rachel's hand. And he says, but it seemed like only a few days out of his love for Rachel. I go clean my toilets. I say, unto God. I still do a lot of the cleaning. I say, it's unto God. Faithfulness and doing it out of love for the sake of others is is a, an expression of worship. And so it's whatever we do, we do heartily unto the Lord. And I believe to really reach... Our Jewish brothers and sisters, we gotta have, we gotta have some reality. You know, where I lived in Zimbabwe, they did not want American Christians to come. And American Christians, I am one. It's not my enemy, but he said that, you know, people got killed on the farm that I lived with. And, you know, everybody got axed to death that I lived with. It was an unbelievable tragedy. But before that, you know, that we needed to get a lot done to serve the villages, to feed the people, because we knew our time was limited there. Either they were going to move out, because the dissidents had come in a few times and threatened our lives. So they had this initiative to get things done for the good of others, to get the wells dug. Because even if they were killed or removed, the wells would still be there for the tribal people we love. But you would get an American that says, oh, I don't really like it. i got to do something else. And, and you say, worship is whatever you do to love him back. It's really, uh, it's not about the activity. It's who we do it for. And I believe the Jewish people that I met were felt the same way. 
They said, your Christianity never reaches the ground. It doesn't make a difference in how you love others, how you serve others, and what you accomplish. So I want to just finish with that. What's our time? Okay. Then our worship, then let me go on here for a second, is really important, I believe, to be expanded within the context of the Israel mandate, within the context of the Joseph Company, which is really about seeing God happen in the marketplace, the discovery of God in his ways in the midst of the marketplace, in the midst of what we want to do for Israel, so we can bring them something that's real and got substance. Now, I just can't work hard for the sake of working hard. I just can't. I just don't. If I know it's all about God and I'm discovering God, then I can do it. And I had a dream as a pastor. This might have been afterwards. My time is horrible. My dates. But then I went, I ran in. This was after the Zimbabwe experience where, you know, it's just, I have a dream that I'm in a city. And uh, let me just, uh, sorry, I'm crossing up two dreams and two times. I have a dream after I'm in uh, Israel and we get back from the United, to the United States. And I'm starting to serve as a pastor again. Five minutes, I, they just told me ten. You just took five away. I'm taking eleven. No. Because I want to pray. So I gotta pray in five minutes. Uh, it's all there. Okay, have a dream. I want to leave this with you. Have a dream, and I'm in a city, and in the city, I'm saying, "Where is he, Jesus?" And people are looking at me, bewildered. The city's dark, and he's nowhere to be found in the city. And I believe there's a progression for our worship and our discovery of God. And I find myself saying to people, he should be in the city. Because Psalms 24, it says, Alert is the Lord's and all that it contains. Isaiah 66, heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. That he really should dwell here in this place. Song of Solomon 1.3, it says, If you want to get to know God, the first place to discover him is in the chamber. Draw me after you, let us run together. And then it says the second place to go on to a mature, deeper love and communion with God is not only in your alone place, but it says pasture the young goats by the flocks of the shepherd. That means go to where he's at. And he cares about others, so he goes out and he cares about others, and you go with him. And then it says if you want to discover him further, it says Song of Solomon 3, 1 and 2, it talks about going to the city. But this one doesn't. This one says, on my bed I sought him night after night. Doesn't want to go any further than that. It's just comfortable. And so it doesn't go. And But he goes out into the city, and sooner or later this one follows him. And so I have this dream where I'm saying he should be in the city. He should be in the marketplace. He should be in the government. If we had time to look at the historic Jesus and where he dwelled, it was profound. He didn't spend all his time in the synagogue. And so these people kind of lead me to a church, and I go to this old Catholic church, and I was brought up that way, so it just meant something to me. And I walk towards the back where the altar boys hung out and the priests before they go out, and there is uh, two priests, and they're standing over this man, and his back is to me, and they're 
by the sacraments, and I know instantly it's Jesus. And I said, uh, I said, he's not to be here alone. And, and they look at me, and they're bewildered, and they said, no, this is where he's to dwell. And I said, no, he's not the God of the corner of the church. He's the God of life. He's the rule of reign in everyday life. All those people out there, Israeli Jews, they see him as not relevant. And we have missed for many forgotten faces of him. And he's just not the God of the sacraments, but he's got a creation. He's the creative entrepreneurial God. He's the God of uh, risk. He's the God of, he's the God who's a builder. And I said, we're discover his face and he's not to be trapped here. And they said, if you take Jesus out, and they were nice guys, into the marketplace, into the other arenas of life, he'll get lost. They said, it's a black hole, and you'll get lost and lose your way. And I cried out something I like Patrick Henry. I said, give me intimacy with him in everyday life, or give me death. Give me the discovery of God, where God can be found. Who is God? And I found on the kibbutz, as I'm pulling these watermelons with these Jewish kids, I'd say, why don't you spend more time in the synagogue? And they'd say, that's where we go to get fueled up. But here's where we discover, here's where God happens. And so I believe there's something the Lord wants to do for us, and I'm just going to pray now. Is just release the reality of the discovery of God within the Israel mandate, and that we could take it to the Jewish people. I'm always tapping my coworkers and other people, and I'm saying, see, God's here, like Bethel. Jacob said, God was here, and we didn't even see it. I say, just stop. God's here. I had a closing of a big property, and everybody's getting mean and greedy. And I said, let's stop. I believe God's here, the benevolent heart of God, and we don't have to be greedy. Let's see the God's face of benevolence here. And I think as we get with our Jewish brothers and sisters, we have to have such a cultivated knowledge of God that we can show them the discovery of God and the discovery of true worship, and we can build the bridge for them. So I want to pray for that. And ask for that. Lord, we do say that this is the hour for the cities of habitation to happen. And that greatest reality about that is the place where you dwell. The place where the discovery of you, the God of all earth, the earth, God of all life, Jesus, you have been minimized and diminished in people's hearts and minds and the reality of you. Has this been relegated to a corner of a church? And we say no. We say the Israel mandate is all about the discovery of you. It's about bringing a people with us, all of us together, into the knowledge of you, God. This thing called Christianity is Christ. You're the mystery of all the ages. You will be all in all. All the earth will be filled with your glory. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you're Lord. And we're just asking you to expand and heal the image of you, God. Oh, to our brothers and sisters within the marketplace, we're asking you for you to be restored as in that place of preeminence. It's all over your word that the marketplace people will be touched. They'll help redeem Israel. They'll help be redeemed. They'll see the knowledge of you, God. They'll help redeem money. And we ask you to release in this room redeemers, our God. Those who would redeem for others the knowledge of God, the treasure of God, the treasure of industry, the treasure of money, the treasure of your love and your worship in these places. God, let us walk out different. 
We're asking you to establish us by grace, by your grace, with the wisdom we haven't had before, to see you in everyday life, to see you in the marketplace. God, I ask you for different ones in here where their expressions of worship have been limited by other people's definition. We ask you fashion their heart, O God. Let them sing the song that's in their heart of love unto you, our God. As unique and wonderful as that is, God, we're asking you that you would let your people go in this room and you would send them soaring into the reality of who they are in you in the midst of their businesses, in the midst of them serving the Jewish people, in the midst of the city habitations that will come up.